Well, hello, church. Wherever you're listening to this sermon, I pray that you are safe and you are healthy, and I pray that this message today would be a blessing to your life. So if you would, you can turn with me to John chapter 4. That's where we'll be today as we continue our study in the gospel. And today we're going to witness the longest recorded conversation Jesus had with anyone in the gospels. And it's with someone that we would least expect. Now it's taken us a while to work through the first three chapters of the gospel of John. So let's remind ourselves how we got here. John tells us that the purpose of his writing was that we would believe Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have eternal life. So everything written in this book is there for that purpose. And from the beginning, his focus of his gospel is on Jesus, the Word who is God, who is the true light and life of men. And not only that, but starting in chapter 2, Jesus begins showing that he's replacing the current establishment, the old way of doing things, with the kingdom of God. The old things are passing away, and something much better is coming, and in fact is now here. Jesus showed that the new wine of the kingdom is far superior to the old wine. He showed that the purification rituals of the past were going away because now there's a perfect, more permanent purification. He showed that He's the greater temple because in Him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell And in the kingdom, the Spirit of God would dwell in the redeemed people of God, not in a building made of stone. And then in chapter 3, we we saw that he revealed that there was this new birth. And this new birth was required in order to enter or even see the kingdom of God, even for a man like Nicodemus, a religious person, a person who was wealthy and influential, even him. He couldn't enter heaven without being born again. And then now in chapter 4, we'll see that Jesus continues to operate in a way that's at odds with their traditional religious and societal ways of operating. But in this story, we're going to find some great hope for us today. And I love how Pastor H.B. Charles, how he sums up chapters 3 and 4. He says, John 3 teaches us no one is beyond the need of grace. John 4 teaches us no one is beyond the reach of grace. And that will certainly be found to be true today. So let's begin reading in John 4, verse 1. John 4, 1. Here's what it says. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So apparently the news and fame of Jesus was beginning to grow at a greater rate. So much so that the word had reached the Pharisees that Jesus was actually gaining a greater following than John the Baptist. And in in response, Jesus leaves Judea, the area around Jerusalem, and he heads back north towards Galilee. It doesn't tell us exactly why he does this. Perhaps it's because he didn't want to further encourage a false competition between him and John. But I believe it's most likely because Jesus left, Jesus felt like his hour had not yet come. Jesus certainly isn't afraid of the Pharisees. He's not afraid of confrontation, and later on he would willingly confront them. But his time has not yet come. 
There will be a time later when things will certainly escalate, but his ministry is not yet complete. There's still so much to do and so much to teach before then, and that includes an encounter in Samaria. And it says he had to pass through Samaria to get to Galilee. Now, that is true in a sense. The fastest and most direct route would be through Samaria. But the thing is that many devout Jews would go out of their way and take a much longer route to avoid passing through there. And why is that? Well, the people who lived in Samaria were Samaritans, and Jews and Samaritans did not get along. In fact, John will even tell us in verse 9 that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jews considered Samaritans to be no better than dogs. There was significant racism between those, and it had been festering for hundreds of years. So just a a quick little Old Testament history lesson. The nation of Israel at one point divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the northern kingdom grew more wicked more quickly, and in 722 BC, they were conquered by the Assyrians. And it was the custom of the Assyrians to when they defeated someone to deport all the native people. So they they took all the Israelites or most of them and sent them away and then repopulated the city with foreigners. So over the years, these foreigners intermingled with the remaining Israelites, both in marriage and eventually in religion. And so it's from this mixing of people that the Samaritans originated And so to the Jews, they looked at these Samaritans as basically half-breeds. They weren't real people. Their religion was similar. They believed in God and some type of Messiah, but they only accepted the first five books of the Bible as authoritative, unlike the Jews who accepted the rest of what we know as the Old Testament. And so by Jesus' time, there was over 600 years of racism and animosity built up between these two groups. And so for that reason, many devout Jews would avoid Samaria altogether. Yet, it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It might be reading too much into it, but I don't think it's a stretch to say Jesus had to pass through Samaria because he had a meeting with someone that he couldn't miss. And that person didn't even know it was going to happen. But it would be a meeting that would forever change the eternity of a whole town. Nothing is an accident in God's plan. And so Jesus and his disciples, they arrive in Sychar, which has a well there that was dug by Jacob long before. This is the same Jacob of the Old Testament who would be renamed Israel and have 12 sons who became the 12 tribes. So this is ancient Israel. And it says, Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. Now think about that. Jesus was tired. Don't doubt that Jesus, though God, was fully human. He was tired from walking a long way and was ready to sit down and rest for a while, especially because it was the sixth hour, meaning it was noon. It was the hottest point of the day, a good time to take a rest. And here's where things get interesting. Picking back up in verse seven, it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus is alone at this well, and a Samaritan woman comes alone to draw water. And then Jesus does something crazy. Not something that we would recognize as crazy, but it is. He asks her for a drink. Seems like a harmless question, but remember what we just learned about Samaritans and Jews. Not much love lost between those two groups. And this isn't just a dramatization of the story, because look at the woman's response. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She herself is astonished and maybe even offended that he's spoken to her. So much so that she's saying, what are you doing? And there's really three major cultural barriers that Jesus is crossing here. There's two that are immediately evident, and that's the ethnic and gender barrier. And Jesus was a Jew, and Jews don't talk to Samaritans. They don't even acknowledge their existence. They'll travel for miles out of their way to avoid them, but yet Jesus speaks to her. And then maybe even a bigger barrier being crossed is a gender barrier. It was considered inappropriate and possibly even scandalous for a man to talk to a woman in public who is not his wife. This was especially true for a rabbi or a teacher, someone respected like Jesus. Women were not valued like they should be at this time. He shouldn't have been talking to this Samaritan woman. But then there's a third barrier that he's crossing that will become more evident later on, but even now we have some hints at it. We'll call it the moral barrier. And here's what I mean. It was typically a woman's task to fetch the water. And this is long before the blessing of indoor plumbing. So women would often go together to get water from the well. The well was almost like a social gathering place. So it's interesting that this woman is alone. And also John points out the time of day. It's noon, the hottest part of the day. It's not the normal time to go get water. After all, this is not easy work. This well would have been well over 100 feet deep. So imagine lowering a bucket down and pulling it back up full of water 100 feet and then carrying it back to your home. (laughs) This is not work that you do at the hottest time of the day. And so we have two signs that strongly suggest this woman must not be accepted or in good favor with the rest of the town likely for morally promiscuous reasons. And this would have been obvious to Jesus, yet he speaks to her. She's obviously some kind of sinner. She's a woman and she's a Samaritan. He shouldn't be talking to her, but he does. And this is really good news for us. This is such a beautiful picture of a God that pursues people. He doesn't remain in heaven completely out of touch with our world. No, in Jesus, God gets down into the muck and mire of our lives. Jesus crossed all the cultural lines he wasn't supposed to in order to engage this woman in this conversation. She didn't even seek him out. He sought her out. You think it's an accident that Jesus stayed behind by himself by this well, and this woman just happened to show up by herself at the same time at the hottest part of the day? Not a chance. There is hope in this story for us. And just a side note, what Jesus does here should force us to ask if we're willing to cross the barriers in our culture to reach those around us. Jesus broke all the cultural rules. 
He did exactly what a good Jewish man is not supposed to do. But he did it because those things don't matter. Culture doesn't matter. People matter. Tradition doesn't matter. People matter. Others' expectations don't matter. People matter. Just some food for thought. If we want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and be true disciples, we must not let cultural barriers hold us back from reaching those around us. But back to the story. The woman responds, why are you talking to me? A fair question to which Jesus responds, if you knew who I was, you would actually be asking me for water and I would give you living water. And this woman's confused. She says, you don't even have a bucket. How, how can you get water? Do you have another source? Even the great patriarch Jacob, as great as he was, had to dig a really deep well in order to get water. So if you're saying you can get water from somewhere else, then you must be saying you're better than him. She's likely very skeptical of Jesus at this point, and similar to previous encounters, she's taking Jesus' words literally. When Jesus spoke of destroying the temple, the Jews took it literally. When he spoke of being born again, Nicodemus took it literally. And here he's speaking of living water, and she's taking it literally, um, which isn't a big surprise. Living, the word living Water could refer to water that was moving like a fresh underground spring. It meant it was fresh, but this living water of Jesus is different. He responds in verse 13, saying, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So this water that Jesus offers permanently quenches thirst. Not only that, but unlike water you draw and use up, this water becomes a spring that continues to produce and wells up to eternal life. It provides life that never runs out. That sounds pretty good. Now this woman, she still doesn't understand, but now she's at least open And curious, she says, give me this water. I don't want to have to keep coming here to get water every day. This is hard work. How awesome would it be if I was never thirsty again? But Jesus is about to show her that she actually has another thirst that's much deeper and much more vital to her than this thirst for water. She has a much greater, much deeper need that she isn't even aware of. Verse 16 says this, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So just when Jesus had this lady open and curious, he takes the conversation in an unexpected direction. And he tells the lady to go get her husband and then come back. 
She responds with a statement that's true on the surface, but is hiding much more history underneath it. And Jesus calls her on it and supernaturally knows the truth of her life, even though they've never met. He says, you're right in saying you don't have a husband because the truth is you've actually had five and the one you're living with now actually isn't even your husband. So we see Jesus go right for the center of this woman's need and her sin. And this is how Jesus operates. He was never shy about confronting a person's sin in their greatest need. We'll see that more as we continue in this gospel. But what he's doing is getting right to the heart and exposing this woman's deepest need to her. There is a much greater thirst for satisfaction and fulfillment than her thirst for water. And that's evident in the fact that she's had five husbands and now is living with someone who isn't her husband. We don't have any of the other details, but that's not a good sign. She's obviously been trying to fill this inner thirst and need for fulfillment in all the wrong places. Been trying to fill it with men and with love and being loved. But it cannot quench that inner thirst. And the truth is that we do the same thing. Every person has this innate desire for fulfillment and satisfaction. And we try to fill that void with something. It's a thirst that we try to quench with something else. We think that if we could just get that husband or that wife or have the perfect relationship, then we would finally be fulfilled. We think if we could just have this amount of money in the bank or that retirement set, then I'll be satisfied. We think if we get that promotion or that job or that house or that truck, then that'll fill the hole inside of us. Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he did the same exact thing. In Ecclesiastes 2, he tells us about it, that he kind of went on this mission to experience everything. He was the wisest and richest king on the planet, and he says he denied himself nothing. He denied himself no pleasures. He accumulated houses and vineyards and hordes of servants at his command. He had all the treasures of the earth at his fingertips. He experienced all that life could possibly offer, and in the end, declared that it was all vanity just a chasing after the wind, like a child running around trying to catch the wind in their hands. And that's true because there's only one source of satisfaction and fulfillment, and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And this Samaritan woman was about to find this out. And she responds with, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Her response is almost humorous. Something tells me that you're a prophet or someone gifted because you just told me everything about my life, and I don't even know you. And then she throws out this theological question to him. And it's hard to tell if she's doing this to deflect the conversation. Like instead of talking about her past, she's trying to just start a theological debate. Or or if she's just testing him to see if he really is a prophet. But she brings up a theological difference between the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaritans believe that Mount Gerizim was the proper place to worship and sacrifice to God. The Jews, on the other hand, of course, believed that Mount Zion in Jerusalem was the proper place. But his response was, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. And skipping down to verse 23, he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We see that phrase hour show up again, just like it did in chapter 2 when Jesus told his mother that his hour had not yet come. But now he says it's coming, and in fact is now here. 
And it's here because Jesus is here. He's, his ministry is going and he's marching towards the mission, the cross, and things are changing. And he says it doesn't matter where you worship because he's about to turn it all upside down. Worship won't be dependent on a physical location. It won't be dependent on animal sacrifices or a prior purification. It won't be dependent on ethnicity or tradition. It'll only be dependent on true worshipers worshiping in spirit and in truth. And we can't separate those two things, spirit and truth. It's worship in spirit because this is worship that can only proceed from someone filled with the Holy Spirit of God. This isn't possible for unbelievers. Just like Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. This is spirit-enabled and spirit-sustained worship. And it's worship in truth because it's in accordance with the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate. This isn't blind worship where we just make stuff up as we go. It's worship according to what God has revealed about Himself and His Son through His Word. This is the only form of worship acceptable to God. And so often we complicate it by adding a ton of other requirements to our worship, just like the Pharisees did. They made worship a burden to the people. And churches have been notorious for complicating and making worship a burden by saying you have to dress a certain way. You have to give a certain amount. You can use these instruments, but you can't use those instruments. You have to do it in this kind of building, not that kind. You have to act this way while you do it. But God only gives us one requirement. You must worship in spirit and in truth. And God had been alluding to this for centuries, even in the Old Testament, in like Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. We see that God isn't so much concerned about the form of our worship as He is with the heart of our worship. And David talks in Psalm 51 about how the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's because the only God-given measure of our worship is in spirit and in truth. And to divide over any other man-made measurements of worship is to miss the heart of worship altogether. But back to the conversation. Here's how it ends in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now understand what just happened. In previous encounters, Jesus had been asked who he was or whose authority he was operating under. And he always gave very vague answers that people didn't understand. But here he plainly reveals himself to be the Messiah to the person we would least expect. It wasn't Nicodemus, an influential religious leader. It was to a Samaritan woman living a publicly immoral life. That's amazing. That's unexpected. But that's really good news for me and you. There's no one beyond the reach of God's grace. You may think of yourself as being better than this Samaritan woman, but the truth is that that's who we are in this story. This woman was a sinner. She had an unquenchable thirst and was looking to satisfy it in all the wrong places. But then Jesus sought her out. He had to travel through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with this woman. 
She wasn't seeking him. She was just coming out to get water alone at the hottest part of the day in order to not run into anybody else. But there was Jesus waiting for her. Do you see the beauty in that? Jesus Christ came from heaven not to condemn the world or to be a king or to be served like royalty. He came from heaven's throne down into the dirt of humanity to seek out people just like this Samaritan woman. This is the gospel. Don't miss this scandal of grace. Jesus came offering living water to people who didn't deserve it and didn't even know they needed it. And the good news is that if his grace is sufficient for this woman, his grace is sufficient for you as well. There's no one beyond his reach. There's nothing you could think, nothing you could say, nothing you could do to place you beyond the reach of God's grace. His grace is enough. So no matter who you are or what you've done, the offer of Jesus is living water. He is offering eternal life. We saw in John three seventeen that he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that salvation comes by believing in Jesus Christ and repenting of our sins. And my prayer is that as you listen to this message, wherever you are, that you'd be gripped by your need for a Savior and know that the Savior has come in the person of Jesus Christ and He's made your salvation possible if you would only believe. And for those of you that are saved, that we'd be gripped today by the fact that Jesus came and sought us out even when we didn't know we needed saving. What an amen. Now this is the end of Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman, but her story isn't completely over. And next week, we'll see how she responds. And, and in her response, we'll actually find a model for how we can respond to the revelation of Jesus and then tell others about the life that we have found. God bless.